Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attack against Paul Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders... He put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison's doors flew open, and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, He drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At that hour of the night, the jailers took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, The magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men. The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much. Uh, for this time to worship you. And thank you for your word. 
And we would ask for the help of your Holy Spirit now that we might understand your word, hear you speak, and live your word to the praise of your Son, the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said this morning, it's such a great privilege to be with you today on your Mission Sunday. Uh, thank you very much for the invitation to be with you here at Fullwood. And uh, thank you for your partnership in the gospel. It's been tremendous over the years for OMF to be partnering with you uh, in, in, in your commitment to world mission. And uh, I'm, I'm particularly glad to be here this weekend. I mean, I, I'm an Arsenal supporter and I had to live in a house with a Spurs supporter, but, but really he's been so gracious and so good. Um, and uh, I had to share in a seminar yesterday with a Liverpool supporter, Paul Woods. But hey, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm Irish and we had a good day of rugby yesterday. So a very good evening to anybody who's Welsh here. But isn't it lovely that whether, you know, you're an Arsenal supporter, whether you're a Liverpool supporter, whether you're Welsh or whether even you're English, here tonight, what brings us together is our love for the Lord and our commitment to the gospel and our desire to see that good news get across the nations. And I think it was John Stott, I don't, I'm not sure, but, but somebody, and it may have been John Stott quoting someone else, but he was talking about how all the different people here in the UK and at the moment, we're still including the Scots in that, uh, how, how they love the gospel. And he said, the English love the gospel because it gives them something to talk about. The Welsh love the gospel because it gives them something to sing about. The Irish love the gospel because it gives us something to fight about. And the Scots love the gospel because it's free. <laughs> so... Uh, I hope I haven't alienated just about everybody in this congregation this evening. Uh, but anyway, uh, we're going to come to Acts chapter 13. And hopefully I will be making sense by the end of this service. Because if the interview is anything to go by, this weekend uh, is now beginning to tell on me. I'm feeling a bit frazzled. But let's come to Acts 16. Now this morning we were in Acts 13. And um, there you've got the church in Antioch, which uh, embodied the beginning of the next stage of the missionary expansion of the church, the move from the Jewish world into the Greco-Roman world. And now this evening, we come to another turning point in the book of Acts, another great turning point, actually, in the great story of God's mission, because in Acts 16, we have the beginnings of of the evangelization of Europe, which is launched uh, after Paul's vision of a man from Macedonia in verse 9 of chapter 16, which then translates into a group of women down by the riverside in Philippi in verse 13. The first convert in Philippi is a businesswoman, Lydia, key person in the church, uh, the Lord opens her heart to the gospel. She opens her home to the missionaries and to the new believers in Philippi. But as is often the case, when gospel witness moves into new territory and when people are changed and, and, and churches are birthed, what comes? Opposition. 
stuff begins to happen. And as Paul and his team make their way again to the place of prayer, uh, something happens which sets off a series of events which in God's sovereign plan open up more opportunities for the gospel. So tonight we're looking at these challenges that Paul and Silas faced. We're looking at the kinds of things that are encountered, but how these things in God's sovereignty open up other opportunities for the gospel. So first of all, I want us to see that there's a challenge here. If you look at verses 16 and verse 13, the challenge of engaging holistically with the spirit world. I've put up there, a, there's a picture of a publication. That's, you, if, you want to, uh, if you want to get that publication, you can come and see me afterwards, but that's a journal that OMF publish uh, about three times a year, and we take a theme. And one of the recent themes was mission and the spirit worlds of Asia. Um, now, if you come back to the chapter 16, look at the contrast between verse 16 and verse 13. The orderly, reverent worship of the scene in verse 13 is now disrupted by a demon-possessed girl with the ability to predict the future and who follows Paul and, and the team over the course of many days, shouting out, these are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you a way of salvation. Now, what's going on here? Was this demon assisting in the uh, in Paul's evangelism, was this, was this proclamation accurate? Well, there are instances elsewhere, and we could go back to, for instance, Luke chapter 8, verse 28, where we find what seems to be a true proclamation by a demonic spirit. Luke chapter 8, verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? But I'm not sure that Acts chapter 16 is along those sorts of lines. It may have been that the demon was trying to discredit the missionaries and their message by associating them and it with the occult. And what the demon was communicating through the girl may actually have been misleading and confusing to the people in Philippi because in their pluralistic, polytheistic uh, frame of reference and with very little Jewish influence in Philippi, they wouldn't have understood here what, what, who was the most high God. What's all that about? Or, or salvation, what does that involve? What's distinctive about that here? Well, certainly, they, see, they wouldn't have understood it in terms of the Hebrew Scriptures, I don't think. And being followed around and heckled over many days is a massive challenge for any preacher. And I, I've very rarely had that happen, although it did happen to me in a Chinese restaurant in Bangor in Northern Ireland when I was giving a talk and uh, someone came in who was, who'd had a, probably too much to drink and, and that's another story, but it's very difficult to keep preaching and keep proclaiming when somebody is heckling and someone is doing stuff and it's very off-putting. 
Well, at any rate, in verse 18, we read that Paul was grieved. He was deeply troubled, undoubtedly because of the condition of the girl and very possibly because of the content of her proclamation. And so he takes action and he commands the spirit to come out in the name of Jesus Christ. And immediately it was gone and the girl is healed and made whole. Now, when the gospel is on the move, when it's breaking new ground and gospel ministry is happening in places and amongst people who are very much in spiritual darkness, there are often what are called power encounters, encounters between the light and the truth and the beauty and the power of the gospel on the one hand and the powers of darkness on the other. And, and sometimes this means dealing with the demonic. And, and I don't know, this is probably not a ministry that's, that's dealt with much or encountered much in, in, in Fullwood. It was much more common a ministry uh, among the churches that, that we had worked with and encountered in Malaysia where we worked for 10 years. And I think that's because Satan uses various methods to try and control and manipulate and disrupt gospel, uh, gospel ministry. Uh, and his tactics depend on the context, the culture, the worldview, uh, and the spiritual environment of, of that context. But don't for a moment think that Satan and the demonic uh, isn't at work in more rational, materialistic, uh, scientific contexts like Sheffield. He just uses different tactics to disrupt the work of the gospel. And we've got to be alert to that. And the spiritual powers of darkness don't just operate on the individual level which I think is addressed here very clearly in verses 17 and 18. But, but the powers of darkness also operate within structures and the kind of economic exploitation and slavery that we find in verse 19, verses, verse 19 here. And there's a word play in verses 18 and 19 um, so that when the demon was gone from the girl, the source of income was gone from her owners. And they are absolutely furious. But let me stop for a moment and read you some comments from an OMF colleague. I was having some email correspondence with a, with a colleague uh, recent, in recent months about spiritual warfare. And, and, and my colleague wrote back to me and said this, Spiritual warfare isn't just about personal enslavement and the opposition of individuals, but it is about spiritual powers at work at a national level also. Laws passed by a government can promote freedom of worship or forbid, limit, control it. They can promote the welfare of the workforce or its exploitation. North Korea would be a case in point. That's why we need to pray for nations, not just individuals. Many Christians are lazy when it comes to praying for nations, for governments and the laws they pass, for justice to be upheld and the cause of the poor to be heard because it takes effort and understanding. It's much easier to pray about someone's gammy knee 
But we need to develop stamina in prayer, to be interested in world events and learn how to pray for countries as nations. That challenged me, challenged my thinking about spiritual warfare, challenged me about my prayer life. But coming back to this specific incident in Acts 16, the healing of this girl infuriates the owners and this leads to Paul and Silas being dragged before the magistrates, stripped, flogged and thrown into prison. They're in the maximum security cell of the Philippian jail. Their feet are fastened into stocks. They're in considerable pain and unable to sleep. And this is the context for the next kind of challenge. And it's this, the challenge of maintaining a gospel perspective in times of distress. Now, in in those conditions, in that prison cell, and after all that they'd been through, what would you expect these men to be doing? Well, here they are, they're praying and they're singing hymns to God at midnight. No wonder other prisoners were listening. They must have thought, what are these guys on? What's, what's happening? We've ne- Last time we were in this prison, we didn't hear this going on. They're awake. They're praising God. And let's just think for a moment about how do God's people respond uh, in times of distress? There's a Sri Lankan Christian leader called Ajit Fernando. And he says this, Usually in times of distress, our minds hold on to eternal realities as articles of faith. But that does not necessarily influence our feelings. Our hearts remain engulfed by the problems. And he goes on to say, songs help truth travel down to the heart. And the use of music, the language of the heart helps speed that process. And that's why I think it's really important to keep attending corporate worship in those times when, when personal circumstances are very difficult and we think, oh, I don't really feel like going to church tonight. I, don't, I just don't want to be with other Christians. I'll just, I'll just do my own thing and I'll stay away. Actually, that's the very time when we need to come together that's the, that's, the, that's the time because in the mix of hymns and songs, uh, we're singing great truth and singing, singing with, with others reinforces that truth, restores biblical perspective and has conversionary power that can impact those who are not yet Christians. And here in Philippi, perspectives certainly change, don't they? With a sudden, violent earthquake. Earth, earthquakes are great perspective changers. I don't know if you've ever been in, a, in an earthquake. Um, I, I, was, I spent time with Neil and Lucy yesterday and the only, the only times in my life I've ever felt earthquakes were in Central Asia. I remember one, one night, my wife and I were in an iron bed and the bed was just jumping. There was an earthquake. And another time, I remember sitting with a nice little old Russian lady learning Russian in her flat with the nice 
teacups and the chandeliers and suddenly it's an earthquake and it really does change your perspective. And here are these guys, the foundations of the building shake, the doors fling open, brackets fall off the walls, chains are loosed. The jailer wakes up, he sees the doors open, uh, 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 he imagines the worst and he gets his sword and he's about to do himself in and it's all like a G4S report to Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Prisons. It's, a, it's an absolute, the prison's a mess. Uh, it's a disaster, but, but all is not lost. And seeing the jailer in the half light, Paul shouts out that, that they're all still here. And I wonder why hadn't all the other prisoners legged it? In the part of the UK where I come from, when prisons get opened like this, there's not a lot of people left when you turn the lights on. So what was going on? And, and you know, you read through the rest of Acts, you, you see Paul exercising really good leadership. For instance, the kind of leadership you see him exercising on the ship later in Acts chapter 27. I think Paul's influence there in this situation, in this prison, really did save the day, not just for that prisoner, but just for the whole context. He brought a stabilizing, wise influence. He kept people calm in the midst of crisis. That's the sort of guy Paul was. And, and I've always been impressed with, with uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, he's someone else, I think, who exercised leadership marked by integrity uh, and courage in a time of, of crisis. And, and while in prison, he wrote this letter And I'm reading here from the the book Letters and Papers from Prison. And here he is. This is May 25th, 1944. And he writes, I have repeatedly observed here how few there are who can make room for conflicting emotions at the same time. When the bombers come, they're all fear. When there's something good to eat, they're all greed. When they are disappointed, they are all despair. When they are successful, they can think of nothing else. They miss the fullness of life and the wholeness of an independent existence. By contrast, Christianity plunges us into many different dimensions of life simultaneously. We can make room in our hearts, to some extent at least, for God and the whole world. We weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that do rejoice. We are afraid for our life, but at the same time, we must think of things more important than life itself. When an alarm goes off, for example, and this wasn't anything to do with hair dryers, when an alarm goes off, we have other things to think about than anxiety for our own safety. We have, for example, to help others around us to keep calm. The moment that happens, the whole picture is changed. Bonhoeffer's life in prison was, was marked by the daily routine of worship and prayer. And one of his fellow prisoners, Payne Best, wrote after Bonhoeffer's death, Bonhoeffer was all humility and sweetness. He always seemed to me to diffuse an atmosphere, diffuse an atmosphere of happiness, of joy in every smallest event in life, and of deep gratitude for the mere fact that he was alive. He was one of the very few men that I have ever met to whom his God was real and close to him. And this was in prison. 
in a time of crisis. And I think that that calmness is born out of a daily walk with God. Trusting him, trusting in his sovereignty and goodness in every circumstance. In all the history that Luke narrates in in the book of Acts, he is very careful to show us that behind it all, and, and in each important step forward in the life of the church, God is present and God is at work. The sovereignty of God is one of the wonderful sub-themes of Acts. And when the early Christians were under pressure, Luke shows us how they were sustained in having a perspective of God's sovereignty on their trials. And in this prison, the sovereign hand of God creates an opportunity for the gospel. All these things that are going on are working together for good. And the good here is not just the physical saving of the jailer's life, but the conversation that now follows uh, leading to the jailer's conversion. So look at verse 29. The jailer falls trembling before Paul and Silas. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And whatever the jailer understood himself to be asking, because that word saved was used in all sorts of ways at that time and in that culture, and he may have known almost nothing at all about the kind of salvation that Paul and Silas had been singing about. But anyway, they waste no time and they give him a straight answer. Trust personally in Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. And then the jailer takes Paul and Silas to his home, probably adjacent to the prison. And Paul takes him, takes him and his family through a crash course of Christianity explored, unpacking the word of the Lord, verse 32, making sure they understand who Jesus is and what this great salvation really is all about. As a mission organization, we often wrestle with questions like, what does it mean for people to hear the gospel? Because the task of clearly communicating the gospel across cultures is incredibly complicated. And we're not interested in hurried or superficial proclamation of the gospel. We're not interested in numbers of decisions. We're we're looking to see fruit of authentic conversion and radical discipleship to Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking for. And that takes time. And it takes time to learn how to communicate the fullness of that message. And in the jailer's case, the fruit of authentic conversion is seen very quickly in verse 33. He takes them to his home. He washes their wounds. He organizes a meal. And the place is filled with joy. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And look, his whole family are saved. Group conversions, household conversions are not something we expect to see in the UK, is it? Because we, we, just, we tend to stress the individual above the group. But group and household conversions, they do happen, you know, in other parts of the world. 
There's a man called Martin Goldsmith who, who was an OMF missionary some years ago uh, in Malaysia and in Indonesia. And Martin tells the story. In fact, he has lots of examples of this, but he, he tells the story of a whole battalion of Indonesian uh, 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 soldiers, a battalion of the army that turned to Christ. Uh, the officers organized for the claims of, of, of the Christian faith to be discussed as a group uh, with the opportunity for any man to support or oppose the claims of Christ and the gospel. And finally, at the end of these discussions, it was agreed that they should all become Christians. And, and the church gave baptismal preparation classes to the whole battalion. And they were baptized all at the same time. And Martin Goldsmith writes, the baptismal preparation included repentance for wrong relationships and sinful behavior in the barrack room. Now the Holy Spirit would bring new life and other units of the army could watch and see what difference the Christian faith makes in the daily life and work of an army battalion. It's a great story. And I know from my own experience working in East Malaysia with Christians from various longhouse communities, great stories of how whole longhouse communities came under conviction and the work of the Holy Spirit drew the whole community to Christ. Group conversions. So in this chapter, there's lots to think about. Paul's experience in Philippi flags up for me three things that we, I think, need to think hard about, not just in East Asia, but here in the UK. Number one, what does it mean for men and women and young people to hear the gospel? What are we actually saying? How are we unpacking it to people out there? Number two, uh, what does conversion involve and what should we expect to see? True evangelism will call people to a radical discipleship as followers of Jesus Christ. Number three, let's, let's remember God is interested in whole families. So let's not forget that. Even though it may go against the grain of our culture, let's pray for household conversions. Well, let's move to the third challenge. Here's a challenge also from this chapter. The challenge of how to use our rights to extend the scope of the gospel and secure religious liberty for others. The next morning, the magistrates send their officers to the jailer with an order to release Paul and Silas. And they obviously thought that a public flogging and a night in the cells uh, was sufficient punishment. But again, we have an unexpected turn of events in verse 37 because Paul says no. And he makes it known for the first time that he and Silas are in fact Roman citizens. Now, if a magistrate was found to have ordered the public beating and jailing of Roman citizens, uh, he could lose his post for such a thing. It was a very big deal. And Paul knows it. And so Paul and Silas, they start the first Occupy movement. Occupy Philippi. They stage a sit-in in, in, the, in, in the prison. And, um, well, uh, he wants the authorities to come and apologize and personally escort them out. <laughs> now, why does Paul take this line? at this stage 
Why did he suffer a public flogging and imprisonment when he could have avoided all that by declaring his Roman citizenship at the outset? Well, I think there's probably a number of answers to that. Probably th- there's, there's, there's probably three areas, I think, that play into this. Number one, his identity was first and foremost in Christ as a citizen, not of Rome, but a citizen of heaven, first of all. And it's interesting, that, that, that's a phrase, of course, that Paul uses in his letter when he writes to the, 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 the Philippians in, in, in Philippians 3, verse 20. So his identity was not first and foremost as a Roman citizen. His identity was first and foremost in Christ as a citizen of heaven. Secondly, uh, there's something about Paul's approach to gospel and mission ministry because in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul tells us that his approach to using his rights was always governed by what was good for the gospel and for winning others. So I think that played into this as well. And then thirdly, and I think really strategically, I think in this present context, if the magistrate issued a public apology, if Paul could get the magistrate to issue a public apology, then that would influence the public standing of the church and its witness in Philippi. And it would protect future missionaries from any random harmful treatment from the magistrates. So Paul was really wise in how he dealt with these things. And we need discernment, don't we, to know when is it right to protest and when is it right not to protest? When is it right to to lay hold of our rights and when is it right not to hold onto our rights? Uh, And, you know, these are issues that Christian communities in lots of places around the world have to face and people need this kind of wisdom and this kind of discernment. In, in the place that I'm most familiar with, uh, which is Malaysia, right now there's, 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 there's protest going on from the Christian community. Uh, peaceful protest, mainly done through media statements like this, because the government in Malaysia is really trying to restrict the, the, the Bible in Malay so that Malay speakers do not get... Bibles in Malay in their hands and, 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 and read it. They want to restrict the use of the term Allah and about 40 other words that are normally used in, in Malay corporate worship, Malay language corporate worship and Malay language uh, scriptures. And the Christian community are issuing various statements and there's a copy of one up on the board there and they're, 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 they're making a protest and they're, they're standing up for their rights. And, and they're, 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 they're asking the government to remember uh, the, the constitution uh, and saying, you know, we, we look to the courts of this land to protect and preserve and defend the cherished principles of our federal constitution. I think they're doing a good job. And it's right, I think, at this time in this way for the Malaysian Christians to be exercising their rights in this way. But in other contexts and in other places, it's perhaps not so right. And let me take you back to 1900, the Boxer Uprising in China. The Boxer Uprising in China in 1900 was crushed by the Western powers. About 30,000 Chinese Christians died. 
the Chinese were forced by the Western powers to pay very high compensation for losses. But the China Inland Mission, which was what the OMF used to be, the China Inland Mission and some other uh, Christians refused the compensation. And one report on this says the Chinese were amazed, the Chinese authorities. In Shanxi province, a government proclamation was posted far and wide, extolling Jesus Christ and his principles of forbearance and forgiveness. And this official endorsement uh, actually served to diminish the anti-foreign spirit of the people and contributed not a little to the, to the growth of the church in China in the years that followed. So in that situation, it was right not to make a big deal, not to lay hold of rights, not to protest. Now, in comparison with Christians in many parts of the world, uh, we live very comfortably here in the UK, don't we? As Christians. But we need, I think, to do much more uh, to speak up for and use our influence and find ways of showing solidarity with Christian communities that are under severe pressure uh, and where believers are in prison for their faith and for their witness. Identifying with the challenging and diverse contexts of Christians in faraway places is perhaps easier if we're trying to identify with the challenging and diverse circumstances of our brothers and sisters in Christ right here in Sheffield. I am sure there are people around us in this city who need us to get alongside them and who need us to show solidarity with them and to encourage them and spur them on in their faith and in their witness. So let's, let's move to the last challenge, the challenge of demonstrating the unity of God's people in the diversity of a local church. Take a look at the last verse of this chapter. Come, come to chapter 16 and verse 40. Paul and Silas visit Lydia's church or sorry, visit Lydia's house to say goodbye and encourage the believers who now meet as a church in Lydia's house. But it's really important, I think, to see what kind of church Luke is telling us came into being here in Philippi. And in this chapter, Luke deliberately chooses three people, three conversions. Lydia, who we didn't look at tonight, the slave girl, and the jailer. Now there must have been many other, uh, many other folk who were saved. Uh, but why does Luke only give us the account of three conversions? Why does he choose these three people? And I think the answer is that they were so completely different from one another. And we were thinking about this topic a little bit in this morning's sermon also from Acts. Luke wants us to see time and time again, how the gospel transcends society's big barriers. The early church in cities like Philippi and Antioch grew across social and, and cultural barriers. Multi-ethnic congregations expressed their unity in diversity and by their community life witnessed to the gospel of reconciliation. And so I think there's something here that we need to think through about being intentional as 
congregations and indeed as mission organizations at becoming more diverse. I was talking with someone after the service today and uh, they were asking me, did did I think that um, in the initial uh, stages of evangelism, it's useful to hone in on one particular people group or one particular section of the community. And I said, yeah, I think it is. I think it is useful to hone in on one particular segment in terms of evangelism. But as, as discipleship carries along and as churches are formed and grow, they need to become, I think, more and more diverse to testify to the gospel of reconciliation. Because there are strategies out there They've been around for a while in the mission world, in the church planting context around the world that would say, just plant churches for particular people and keep that church just for particular people. And I can't see that or justify that from the New Testament. I can see that it's helpful to begin like that. But what's interesting to me is that that didn't actually happen in Philippi either. Right from the start, you've got three people who are miles apart from one another. A businesswoman a really good one, a slave girl and a jailer, they were completely different. Different in their felt needs, different in their backgrounds in every way. And yet they were saved by the same gospel and they were brought into the same church. And I I, I bet the people around Philippi, when they saw that church meeting and when they saw what was going on in that context of witness and worship, they must have asked questions. What kind of good news is that that can bring these people together? Who is this Jesus? How come this gospel reconciles people in this way? And that, what is, yes, a huge challenge. Diversity is always a huge challenge. Brings also amazing opportunities for the gospel because we become, as congregations, as someone put it, a a question mark to society around us. Because nowhere else do you see that kind of reconciling, transforming power. It's only found in the gospel. And tonight, if you don't know that gospel, if you don't know that Jesus that brings those sorts of relationships into a reality, then come and talk to me afterwards because I'd love to introduce you to him. So there are challenges in gospel ministry. There will be opposition. There will be times of real stress and distress. And we've got to keep gospel focused. We've got to keep the Lord at the center of stuff. And we've got to hang on to his goodness and his sovereignty. He, he has a firm grip on our lives and he will not let us go. And the people that you send out in mission, you think of the Norgates, you think of others that have gone out from this place. You can think of really tough times that those folk have encountered. They need our prayers. We need to get alongside them. Exercise that kind of solidarity that we've been thinking about. Pray for them. Stand alongside them and support them. But ultimately, this is the Lord's work. It's his mission before it's ours. And what a privilege it is to be involved in what the Lord is doing, whether it's here in Sheffield or whether it's there in Shanghai or wherever. God is at work. And our job is to take note of what he's doing and say yes to joining in and his spirit will lead us and by his grace we will make a difference.
Amen.